You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. And and you mentioned the US Air Force Counterintelligence course. Is it only members of the OSI that do that course? Well, very interestingly, it started out that way as a uh, course that uh, after uh, fighting a decade, um, uh, uh, you know, focusing on counterterrorism, we needed something to be able to turn towards um, uh, counterintelligence activities in the, inside the United States um, and, and te- technology protection in particular. And we started out with just OSI individuals. However, uh, we broadened, uh, broadened it to add seats for uh, NCIS agents to attend, and then Army MI agents. And it was very neat to be able to pr- bring their perspective uh, inside, the, uh, inside the course. So um, we've had individuals from DIA attend, and we really appreciate that diversity, uh, for, especially uh, this is a people business and being able to have uh, good broad discussions in and outside the classroom on counterintelligence really made everyone uh, a bu- much better professional. Yeah, mo- most of the people that go through the class, well, first off, it's important to note that everyone who attends that class, they're already a special agent with OSI. They've already received a certain amount of counterintelligence training um, in their, their basic training prior to becoming a special agent. Later on in their career, they have the opportunity to attend that class. And yes, the, the vast majority of the seats are set aside for our OSI people, but we do, uh, um, we do have a limited number of seats that we share with other services. And that's also the case uh, kind of in a collegial way across this community. We often have people that get to sit on other people's courses. So, for example, I, I, I've had the opportunity to attend training from other agencies. And, uh, for example, I, I had the privilege of being a guest speaker at the FBI Academy. So um, we, I think there's a good cross-pollination um, in the training environment because we work so closely together out on the streets. And, and where does the this training take place, and how long is it? And you know, how is it 
how is it orchestrated? Yeah, so if I can, um, I'll tell you the basics of how OSI people get trained. So after someone is selected to come into the organization, um, they, they go down to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which is in Glencoe, Georgia. And uh, for, for most federal agencies that have investigators, um, other than the FBI, DEA, and uh, Army CID, um, the vast majority of special agents in the U.S. are trained uh, at FLETSI, along with some uniformed uh, law enforcement personnel that serve in other capacities for the federal government. So FLETSI is uh, 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 down in Georgia on a base. The Department of Homeland Security runs it. And the first class they go through, um, uh, CIDIP, the Criminal Investigations Training Program, it's a common curriculum to all new special agents in the government uh, that, are, that are at FLETSI. After they get done with CIDIP, they go on to a follow-on course, which is also located there uh, at FLETSI, where they, they learn the craft of serving in an Air Force Space Force context. At the end of that uh, training, they, um, uh, they get their badge and credentials, and uh, they're on uh, a period of time out in the field where they're, um, they are uh, fully qualified special agents, but um, they're continuing to refine and, and learn their craft uh, um, uh, under the mentorship of people in whatever unit they're assigned to. Normally, we assign them to a, uh, an Air Force space where they're going to have the opportunity to see lots of different things um, in both a criminal investigative and a counterintelligence context. Um, then later on, they can be selected to attend the Air Force counterintelligence course. And we have uh, another training site uh, where we do that, uh, as well as uh, some of our other training uh, that is uh, particular to um, uh, military operations overseas. And we do those uh, in a couple of different bases around the country. Okay, and what um, what what kind of qualities are you looking for in recruitment, and and how does one become an OSI special agent other than you know going through the training? How do you get selected? Okay, well, so it depends on your status, um, but I'll, I'll briefly walk you through it. So if you're an enlisted person in the Air Force, um, you will have uh, been doing a different job in the Air Force, and usually you will become a, a non-commissioned officer, um, a staff sergeant uh, uh, or higher, but generally it tends to be at about the staff sergeant grade. You will have been doing something, say, perhaps for eight to 10 years in OSI, and you will um, either apply or be recruited to transfer in the Air Force from whatever you were doing before, which could be uh, security forces, it could be being a dental technician, it could be a wide variety of things. Um, and, uh, and then you choose, you get selected, you go through a screening process, and then you get the opportunity to attend FLETSI. Most of the people that that do that and cross over mid-career as uh, enlisted personnel, they tend to stay with us until the end of their careers. There are a handful of people who become uh, chief master sergeants, the most senior grade in the, uh, in the Air Force, who then move on to serve in other responsibilities in the Air Force. But, but most, most enlisted special agents end up uh, serving with us uh, throughout the remainder of their careers. 
For officers, there are a small number that uh, come in each year, either directly from the Air Force Academy, from officer training school, or from the Reserve Officer Training Corps. And then there are some who cross flow over from uh, a different career field, usually as a, say as a first lieutenant or as a captain. For our civilian special agents, there are some that we recruit directly from college. Um, and, um, and that can be a humbling experience. Uh, for example, we have been uh, recruiting recently for a small number of opportunities, and we've received thousands and thousands of applications uh, for those. So for those people, we um, have been really trying to recruit people who have a mix of uh, a cyber experience, perhaps foreign languages, um, accounting, international experience, things that um, frankly would be hard for us to replicate inside OSI, that's helpful for us to have them already uh, in, their, in their kit bag, as we say, before they, they ever show up to us. Um, but frankly, we're, we're open to people from a variety of backgrounds. Part of the reason we recruit enlisted people and officers from so many different backgrounds is because we're serving the entire Air Force, and it's good to have people that are drawn from the ranks of the Air Force and, and now the Space Force. Um, for uh, those who are from the civilian background, we want them to have a diversity of backgrounds as well. We also take people as um, people that come over uh, with a certain amount of previous investigative experience. And so this would be somebody that might have been working for another federal agency and mid-career they come over uh, and uh, choose to leave whatever agency they're with and come and join uh, us. And um, so in those cases, we have kind of a, a, a course where they don't have to go through all of the training, but they go through a, a transition course basically to learn the things that are unique to the context. So in, in my case, um, I, uh, I thought I was gonna do something else in the Air Force. I found out about OSI and I had the opportunity to come directly in as a lieutenant. Terry, you, you were doing some other things I think first before you came over. Right. Um, um, like uh, Jude talked about, um, I think it's very neat if you go to any, we have 220 plus OSI attachments around the world. And if you go to any one of those detachments, you won't find one same story about how you joined OSI. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a dental tech, a former, former security forces member, intelligence member. They all bring unique skill sets that helps make the team a little bit better. And in counterintelligence, uh, more than any other business, I, I believe uh, the team approach is, is so important to be able to connect and uh, be able to have a, a very diverse and um, uh, uh, learning type of capability for your team. But uh, every, everybody's a little bit different. Um, I came straight out of ROTC uh, during a time during a reduction of forces, and um, I could have been, uh, they gave me the options of being a missileer, a finance officer, or an adjutant. And um, I chose to be an adjutant uh, because it was a short-lived uh, type of job that allowed me to move on to, to other things, which, which I ended up moving on to OSI. But I got to serve in the command post at uh, Ramstein Air Base, Germany, for a year and learn a lot about uh, the Air Force from that perspective. And when I came to OSI, I brought that, those mission sets that I had learned in the Air Force uh, with a flying uh, wing for KC-135 tankers uh, to the command post at Ramstein. I brought that experience with me to, to make my organization, my small detachment better.
So there's a number of different routes into the OSI. That's that's really interesting. And one of the things that I would like to pick back up on is technology protection. So it sounds like this is a, a capability that you have evolved into and that you have been tailoring to the environment. Could you tell us a little bit more about that evolution and also some of the major cases? One of the ones that I know of is uh, Sue Bin, uh, AKA Stephen Sue, who was a um, cyber espionage um, hacker for the PLA. Could you speak a little bit more about some of the major milestones and the development of technology protection? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Um, when you asked about what qualities we look for uh, in OSI agents, um, with, with, the, with the thousands of individuals that apply, um, I think really the, the big thing that I look for is someone that can think. Um, I appreciate uh, uh, their background, their, their proven ability to be able to learn and, uh, and apply what they've learned. Um, but before we talk about Sue Ben, I, um, I kind of want to bring up uh, just really quick uh, one of the older cases, and this is, this is an agent uh, that one of our agents who's retired and, and working now for us as a contractor, she ran this investigation, uh, is uh, back in 2005-2006, um, investigation of a university professor, uh, James uh, Reese Roth. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up because um, Roth was working on a, uh, for the University of Tennessee a, in the plasma sciences lab to help develop plasma actuators for munition systems, including unmanned aerial vehicles. Now, there is no training any special agent or counterintelligence officer can do to, to learn and understand what a plasma actuator actually does. Uh, so having this special agent be able to learn and understand that and to be able to investigate uh, Dr. Roth, uh, to be able to understand that, um, that he was providing this information through his graduate students uh, to China, um, and to understand the specifics of the Arms Export Control Act that he was uh, violating. Um, this agent was able to absorb that, that technical information, understand the legal aspects of it, working with the FBI, working with the U.S. Attorney, uh, working with different agencies like the IRS and, and Customs to be able to build a case that uh, was able to, to have uh, Mr. Roth uh, prosecuted and, uh, and be sentenced to four years confinement. So he was the first university professor found guilty of transferring uh, control defense technology to foreign actors. So when I look for agents to come and, and start in technology protection, I really appreciate that they have a good understanding of, of, of history, uh, they understand um, uh, past investigations and counterintelligence cases, but I'm really looking for someone who can learn on their feet and be able to apply. And that's a very, very special skill. Now, uh, turning to Su Bin, uh, Su Bin was a, a Chinese national uh, who participated in uh, cyber espionage hacking schemes, uh, who helped uh, People's Liberation Army uh, from China hack, uh, uh, their hackers still more than 600,000 files from Boeing related to our C-17 cargo aircraft. Um, ben, uh, Sue Ben's uh, stealing of uh, design plans and maintenance manual manuals of the C-17 was um, what really impacted our technology, our military advantage with, a, with our heavy airlift aircraft. 
But the group, the hacking group that he um, he instructed, he led, he organized, uh, also targeted information for our F-22 and our current F-35 fighter aircraft. So between 2008 and 2014, uh, Sue Ben um, uh, instructed hackers on which individuals, which companies, which technologies to target. And he ha actually helped translate the data they obtained from English to Chinese. So Ben and his uh, co-conspirators um, also, also drafted and distributed reports directly to the department and the PLA's general staff headquarters. So. Um, um, FBI was the lead agency. Uh, OSI was uh, very pertinent to be able to help uh, be able to uh, help the FBI and Department of Justice, uh, the U.S. attorneys, to be able to navigate between different contractors, uh, program offices, senior U.S. government officials, to gather the relevant data to support the uh, extradition, prosecution, and sentencing. What's very unique was that uh, Sue Ben was a, uh, actually a, a in, in Canada and uh, he came on his own account to the United States to, to be uh, prosecuted. So our um, agents worked directly with different program offices, uh, Lockheed Martin and other companies to, uh, to help uh, the prosecution. So um, when we're looking at our counterintelligence agents, especially uh, our agent uh, who worked on Sue Ben, uh, it really takes a lot of ability to understand uh, the technical data not to the point that you could actually go out and, and bend metal and, and, and build things, but to be able to apply it to uh, the rules of evidence and law and work with the legal team and FBI to, to get a successful prosecution. So uh, the, the outcome uh, was that, uh, that Sue Ben uh, pled guilty to conspiring to engage in the theft of trade secrets for the benefit of China and, um, and, uh, the, and, and his attempts to uh, illegally export and uh, uh, defense articles. So he was sentenced to uh, 30 months confinement. Could, could you just give us a little bit more information on Subin? Where, where was this? Who did he work for? Why was he in Canada? Well, uh, he actually worked, uh, was a contractor for a small company uh, in Canada that was helping the defense technology uh, build. So he was working for a small co uh, company based in Canada that was helping the United States, uh, the Air Force, with uh, cyber activities or, or cyber programs to support the, uh, our aircraft. So basically he was working in Canada uh, for a company and he didn't have direct knowledge but he was able to go around and meet different contractors and then be able to target the People's Liberation Army to be able to go and um, uh, target different individuals within industry to be able to gather the information that they were, um, that was a priority for China. And are, are, are there any more recent cases that have been in the newspapers that our listeners may, may uh, be aware of that OSI have been involved in? Yes, um, uh, Yu Long. I'm not sure if uh, you or your readers have heard about uh, Yu Long, um, Chinese national and a lawful permanent resident of the United States uh, who became a senior engineer at United Technologies uh, Research Center. 
Um, he worked on jet engines used in the F-22, uh, Raptor, and the F-35 Lightning II uh, fighter aircraft. Um, we learned that uh, Yulong had uh, been accepted into China's uh, Thousand Talents program, which is uh, basically a plan uh, that to recruit top scientific talent uh, for China to make them the world leader in science and technology. Uh, Yulong provided documents uh, from an unclassified um, job that he had, but he was able to provide documents from his work at United Technologies to uh, several state-run institutions in China. He actually traveled to China with reams of documents uh, and data that contained uh, highly sensitive intellectual property, trade secrets, and export control technology, which he stole from uh, United Technology Technologies. Uh, in his own writing, uh, Long declared uh, that his goal was to help China mature its own aircraft engines. And um, uh, military engines are very complicated and uh, require a, a lot of different materials that can withstand heat. Um, and so Yu Long stole that information, which um, uh, closed the technology gap from the United States uh, and China. I'd like to take a moment to thank this week's sponsor, EveryPlate. Enjoy America's best value meal kit. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I could find a meal kit that was less expensive than takeout? How about something that was roughly the same price as a cup of coffee per meal? That's where EveryPlate comes in. It's the price point that sets EveryPlate apart. All the meals come together in around 30 minutes, definitely faster than the trip to the grocery store for the ingredient that you don't have, or even starting a meal from scratch. In fact, quite often, faster than getting delivery. Every week there's 14 recipes with a range of flavours and ingredients. Let me give you an example. This past weekend, I made every plate's tangy cherry meatballs with garlic mashed potatoes and zucchini. Now, meatballs and potatoes, I mean, there's just, you know, there's no way that you could really go wrong with them, but this was really tasty. They really brought it together well. So I just want you to think about every plate. They're a recurring sponsor, they're affordable, and they're tasty. Try every plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code SPYCAST199. So that's 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code SPYCAST199. It, it seems to me that like in the 21st century, China and the United States are going to be vying to be you know, I guess to be number one. And the advantage that the United States has in that contest is technology and ideas. So it seems to me that the role that the OSI plays in technology protection is, it's actually like much, I mean, it's always been important, right? But it seems to be even more important given given the the, the way that, we seem to be moving in the 21st century. I'm sure you gentlemen would agree. I think what we're going to try to do in OSI is we're going to try to protect people in technology from, from any threat. 
we're hoping that we're going to create a deterrent effect. There's always going to be broader national uh, level policy considerations, but we're we're playing an important role in, in concert with the rest of the, the U.S. law enforcement intelligence community to try to de detect uh, situations like the ones that Terry has highlighted, uh, to, to deter them and to stop them, and uh, when appropriate, um, to, to, to present in concert with uh, our colleagues from other agencies for prosecution. And um, we're hoping this will reduce the threat to us. But I. Uh, I am confident that in the decades to come, we will continue to take a, uh, a very attentive uh, approach uh, where we are trying to identify these threats as early on. And I think, as, as Terry mentioned earlier, part of that is making sure that we have a, a well-equipped workforce, um, but also that we really have uh, partnerships both on and off the base. So if it's uh, a situation where it's a private company that might be doing something or producing something for the Air Force um, and something unusual or suspicious happens, we want to find out about that as, as early as we possibly can. And then we'll work in partnerships with uh, the other parts of the U.S. government and other foreign agencies as appropriate uh, to try to neutralize the threat. Andrew, and how does that? Oh, sorry. Andrew, I, um, I totally agree with Jude. Um, I think that uh, technology protection uh, is evolving and um, and in uh, moving faster, accelerating through change. Um, but the defense industrial base uh, and, and the acquisition community is having to partner with our law enforcement agencies to balance uh, security uh, and innovation. And that's a very, very tough balance, especially if you're trying to develop uh, platforms on a uh, rapid scale. Um, there's a very complex cyber environment um, that is uh, pa uh, patrolled by foreign intelligence, criminal, and econ economic um, espionage threats. So it, it's really a partnership between the industrial base, uh, the research centers, and law enforcement and, and intelligence to be able to understand what threats are there and then how we can mitigate threats to be able to move quickly through the research, innovation, development, testing, and building of platforms. So, so how does it work? Um, for the defense industry, there's a clear link to uh, American national security, but for something that seems to have less immediate defense, uh, that seems to have less of an impact uh, directly. So, so if we take the example of Boeing, Boeing are making uh, engines to go on fighter jets. There's a clear link. What if it's uh, an American company that isn't manufacturing products for the the military, but there's nevertheless an important technological component that that would be useful for a foreign adversary to steal. Do, the OSI get involved with that, or is it strictly with uh, the defense and aerospace industry? Well, it's a, it's a partnership. So, for the lead for protecting uh, against economic espionage, and for particularly for non-defense-related articles, is um, is the FBI. 
for those things where there's a, a kind of a dual use role or there's something that may not be a purely defense related uh, product that ends up in Air Force or defense related uh, systems, um, it's a partnership. So we work with uh, the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. We work with our counterparts in the Army and in NCIS. And then we work with the, the FBI as well. And so we spend a lot of time, frankly, thoughtfully trying to divvy up the work. Um, if, there's, if it's purely something that doesn't have a defense nexus, the, the FBI has a very attentive watch and very good partnerships with companies uh, all around the country. Um, I think where it's uh, something where we have a, uh, a blended responsibility because they, it's a company that produces both commercial products and defense products, we try to really thoughtfully work behind the scenes in advance with the other parts of the U.S. government so that we have an integrated approach with these companies. Many of their um, uh, their staff, of course, uh, are working very hard to develop innovative things. And as Terry mentioned, it's, it's really a, a balance test. What we want to do is, is be a good partner, re recognizing that um, in, the, in the private sector, they, uh, they have responsibilities uh, to, to their employees, to shareholders and others. And we try to strike uh, the right balance. Now, that balance between um, uh, security and innovation and, and sort of where exactly that dial should be set to, I think that's going to be something that is probably going to be the work of decades to try to tweak that appropriately based off the threats that we face. Andrew, uh, I, I, absolutely, yes, I absolutely agree that uh, partnership is really the absolute key ingredient uh, for success in protecting technology. Uh, the intelligence community is very vital to understanding the threats, and the law enforcement community is, is fundamental to deterring and, and neutralizing those threats. So just like Jude said, I, I can't say enough great things about FBI, CIA, Treasury, uh, NSA, DIA, Department of Commerce partners for their great efforts to combine for us to protect these technologies. Um, also, our, our military uh, uh, department of defense um, partners, NCIS, Army MI are, are extremely capable and during counterintelligence partners and protecting technologies. Uh, but really, the, um, the unknown hero here, um, the, the less well-known but equally important partners, is the defense innovation and defense industrial base. Our defense contractors are extremely perceptive sensors in identifying the use of uh, illicit means to, to acquire intellectual property. And they have a vested interest to protect their own intellectual property uh, for their economic well-being of their company, um, as, as well as the government does for the military and technological advantage that, that we want to uh, maintain for national security. Uh, security professionals from uh, the National Defense Industrial Association, the uh, Contractor SAP Security Working Group, the Aerospace Industries Association, are really true quiet professionals with shared interests for protecting advanced military capabilities and their own intellectual properties. So. Uh, quiet professionals, the, the quiet heroes that, that don't get parades and they don't get pizza parties, but they do an incredible service for our nation to be able to protect not just their intellectual property, but our military and technological advantages. 
Um, also, I mean, the quiet heroes are, are those security professionals at, at universities or research centers, labs, and, and they're able to inject security early into the processes to be able to help us identify pre-classified information that needs to be protected early uh, so that we can maintain those advantages. So just like Jude said, that, that partnership is key and being able to have discussions about what technologies to protect, uh, uh, where in the supply chain we need to, to add additional protection and security, uh, we need to apply more resources to those efforts. That all begins with a dialogue that happens very early in the, uh, the innovation phase. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. I guess what I'm grasping towards is trying to get an understanding of your remit. So from a technology protection perspective, as you look out on the country, uh, the environment at the moment. What are what's your areas of focus? I realise that at some points there's partnerships and there's multiple agencies, but can can you give the listeners a sense of your remit? Yeah, what we're going to do, Andrew, is we're going to try to think through where adversaries might be thinking that we're not well protected. And we're going to, to reach out um, and try to make sure that people, perhaps who've never met a, a special agent from OSI or anywhere else, for them to know that we're open, we're accessible, and they want us to, um, to highlight to us and to our partners if they, uh, if they have concerns about something. So an example might be, Let's say that uh, there is a company that has a small contract with the Air Force um, or one of the, the parts of the bigger defense enterprise that we support, and um, they, they have an unusual activity that happens, some anomalous cyber activity on their network. They have um, suspicious inquiries from uh, investors, so on and so forth. Um, in such cases, uh, when there's a nexus to the Air Force and the Department of Defense, in some cases that will be reported first to the FBI or to other parts of DOD or perhaps to the contracting officer. In other cases, it'll be reported directly to us. And so what we're trying to do is just to make sure that behind the scenes, we have a, a good system in place to uh, sensitize our partners in industry um, and in academia and elsewhere uh, about 
the, the need to highlight concerns early on. Then what we'll do is we'll work, you know, largely behind the scenes to figure out, um, is this actually really a threat? Uh, is it something that is legal activity, which is nonetheless um, uh, something where there um, are things that uh, it's probably worthwhile to be aware of uh, because it could move into, uh, into the zone of being legal over time, depending on how it evolves. Um, in, in such settings, what we want to do is to, to figure out how do we proceed. Now, if it, if it does appear that there's been a, a violation of U.S. law, uh, different parts of the U.S. government and the law enforcement community have responsibility for in, enforcing different violations. So it could be that, that, that OSI has a role, it could be that the FBI has a role, but it could also be that the Department of Commerce or Homeland Security Investigations and the Department of Homeland Security, that they actually have the lead for uh, uh, such investigating such violations. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna work to try to get that information from them. It is rare the case these days where there is really just a single agency involved, particularly in a defense context. So our remit is, is when there is a connection to the Air Force or the parts of the Department of Defense that we have a responsibility for, but in almost any case, um, we're going to be doing that in partnership with uh, a, a number of other stakeholders. Okay, that's that's interesting to know. And one of the other things that you both mentioned was the role of cyber. I was just wondering to, you know, have you guys had to retool for the cyber age? Are there now OS? whose main domain as the cyber realm? Yes. So OSI has been involved in cyber um, almost as long as there have been home computers. I remember that when I went through the academy, uh, one of the first cases they explained to us was how, in a criminal context, there was somebody who had uh, actually cut up a five and a quarter inch uh, floppy disk with a scissors and the OSI agents were actually able to reassemble it and pull the data off. That was 30 plus years ago now. But <laughs> old still. <laughs> on OSI had a robust effort focused on uh, what we now think of as digital forensics, which is really making sure that when there's inf when there's evidence as part of a criminal investigation or as a counterintelligence matter that we're able to collect that information, to process it, and then ultimately to be able to present it in court, or if it's in a, a deployed or other setting um, where we're using uh, more of our counterintelligence authorities, uh, that we process it um, and, uh, and exploit it to, to try to protect uh, our people and our installations. So we continue to have a robust digital forensics program. We also have programs in place where we are, are working in partnership with a, a number of other entities regarding cyber intrusions. So we work very assiduously to follow up on threats to the Department of the Air Forces and Department of Defense's networks. And uh, those efforts are conducted with other parts of the intelligence community and other parts of uh, the US military, including uh, US Cyber Command. In terms of retooling, one of the things that, that we're currently working through is the fact that that's a pretty broad set of skills um, that one needs to master. 
You have to be familiar with the context of being a special agent or as an intelligence specialist, uh, an analyst. And that's a, that's a broad array of things you have to learn how to do. Then we have to have people that understand the forensic side and then potentially the people that understand the, the online side, the intrusion side. And so what we've done is we've uh, attempted to, to really focus our training. Generally speaking, what happens is, is after somebody has been in OSI for two to three years, after they've really kind of mastered the basics as a special agent, that's when they're gonna go off and either focus on the digital forensic side or on the uh, cyber investigations and operations side. Um, we have a large number of people that um, uh, are uh, comprehend um, and understand how to interface with those uh, two groups of specialists, uh, but it really is uh, something that requires a, a, a fair amount of work to, to truly master those things. One of the things that OSI has done, in addition to having special agents that understand digital forensics and cyber, is we also hire people that are truly experts. And this could be personnel who are brought on either because they have a particular expertise in analysis, it could be because they have a background in computer science, and some of those people will be hired as civil servants, and in other cases, uh, we have people that, where we work with other entities, and in some cases, we, we bring on experts to focus on a particular case. But I would say that, that it's gonna be a constant retooling, Andrew. Uh, there's just there's almost nothing in our daily lives that doesn't touch cyber and so in, in just about any investigation we have these days there's a, a digital evidence component there is the use of social media by witnesses the subjects of our investigations and for uh, those investigations or operations where we think that there could be a foreign nation state involved it is uh, particularly um, uh, important that we are really trying to kind of bring all the pieces together. One of the, uh, one of the entities we work with very closely is uh, uh, DC3, uh, the Defense Cybercrime Center. DC3 is, uh, is another part of the DOD enterprise. Um, at its origins, it had a very close relationship with OSI, and we continue to have a very close partnership uh, and overlap in some of our mission areas. The Air Force serves as the executive agent for DC-3, but DC-3 has a broad array of, uh, of customers and partners across the DOD. So in some cases, if we collect evidence in a case, we will use DC-3. They have a part of DC-3 is a lab, and they will process that. And they just have some incredible capabilities. So I think that cyber is gonna be something that's infused in our investigations uh, for the first, well, pretty much forever in the future because it's such a part of our daily lives. And is there, is there something that's been in the news recently that you can use to um, highlight the, the cyber component of your, of your work? I will need a minute to think about that, Andrew. Um, okay. Perhaps we can move it's on. Something that so. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let's move on. Um, okay. Um, I mean, I think that I've, I've managed to cover all of the things that I wanted to cover. So I'm I'm really pleased, and it's been such an interesting discussion. I guess 
one of the things that that I'm that, that I would like to know is is there anything that you think that's important to tell OSI's story that we haven't touched on yet? Good question. Let me take a look at our notes real quick. I'll uh, I'll start um, um, where I think we are um, uh, going in the future um, is um, um, General Charles Brown, the um, Air Force Chief of Staff, recently wrote an article, "Accelerate, Change, or Lose," uh, and in that article he talks about our environments being shaped by uh, declining resources, uh, aggressive global competitors and high demand for rapid technology development and building. Um, our national security is, is dependent on the counterintelligence community's ability to rapidly adjust business practices that identify, uh, mitigate, and uh, neutralize intelligence threats, insider threats. Um, we have to be able to uh, accelerate how we engage those threats. And, um, and with the new digital engineering phase, we're gonna see the uh, development of platforms go from uh, 20 years to build a weapon system to five years. And, um, and in that rapid transition, uh, law enforcement, counterintelligence, intelligence community have to be able to rapidly identify uh, threats from uh, countries, uh, from uh, organized crime, um, our, our economic espionage that's trying to steal technology, whether it's for state purposes or for profit. So um, if I were to talk to agents uh, that are now just entering the counterintelligence field, um, uh, I would encourage them to uh, seek out and uh, develop uh, partnerships with um, with our acquisition community, our innovation base, our research centers, to be able to understand where they're going and uh, to be able to uh, help integrate their practice to support um, uh, the security and protection of those platforms. Because as our military and technological advantage uh, decreases, we've got to develop systems that can rapidly adapt in the field. And uh, General Brown uh, stated it best is, if we don't accelerate change in our uh, business practices, um, and that applies to counterintelligence and law enforcement, then we're going to lose in the future. Yeah, I, I think what I would offer is that as I look back over the last quarter century of having the opportunity to serve as a part of the OSI team, the things that the Air Force and the Department of Defense has been involved in has evolved. And so when I arrived in Germany in the mid-90s and I had the opportunity to serve in the Balkans and elsewhere, it was really uh, an immediate post-Cold War world. We pivoted um, after 9-11 to really focus on international terrorism. And we're currently in the process of adopting a balanced approach where we are continuing to support the Department of Defense's and the U.S. government's effort as it pertains to, to thwarting and neutralizing international terrorism. And on um, 
supporting the national defense strategy. When I think about all the things that potentially could come down the pike, um, there are a broad array of threats. And some of them will, will be ever more complex than even the kinds of things that um, Terry and I have uh, worked through in our career. What we're really trying to do is to try to make sure that we develop a workforce that is going to uh, be innovative, that's going to be agile, and continues to figure out how best to partner with uh, our counterparts across the U.S. government and, uh, and globally. And one of the interesting things about OSI is that um, we're not big enough to master every single domain. So for us, these partnerships are, are absolutely vital. So I'm not sure what will come uh, 10, 15, 20 years from now, but I'll be interested to see where our, our OSI colleagues take things after uh, both Terry and I have moved on to other things. So thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.